the key there is that you start small. So if you're if you're fearful or uncomfortable in this area, uh, kind of working with digital technology, definitely just start small. Just upload a PDF, get students to email you with their reflection on the on on the notes that you've posted. That's you know that's fine for a first step. We have all these like frameworks and and models for best practice. Um, you know what does good look like for e-learning, and it's it's all this creative and collaborative and all of, all of that good stuff, but the reality is everybody started small. You're listening to the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log. Stories from inspiring educators, leaders, and influencers who are challenging the status quo. Today's episode is sponsored by My Study Series, an online learning platform supporting Kiwi teachers and students through NCEA. With automated self-grading quizzes after every video, My Study Series ensures students receive immediate feedback on their level of understanding. Check it out now at mystudyseries.co.nz. everyone and welcome to episode 55 of the Augmented Learning Podcast and Video Log where you're able to grow, learn and develop by accessing high quality PLD when you need it most. I'm your host Carl Kondoloff and I'm joined again by my co-host Celia Flick. Celia, what's on top for you right now? Kia ora Carl. Um, it has been a beautiful weekend so um, that's on top for me. I have been thinking today about um, about gratitude and 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 what I am grateful for. And so the fact that summer is still sticking around for us a bit longer and we're able to enjoy these beautiful days and getting outside has definitely been on top for me this weekend. So good, right? We were supposed to um, be at the Kiwi Kids Triathlon, but because of our current climate and everything that's happening around the world, that was cancelled, unfortunately. So my daughter um, didn't get to compete, but it was a beautiful day. So we went down the park and we made up... um, we made a little uh, little duathlon for her, so she still got to compete, which was which was fun. And she put her stickers on, and she rode around the park, and then did a couple of laps, and um, she had a really good time. Oh, that's very cool. So the world is gripped in this pandemic, um, and it has been for a couple of days now. And it seems like uh, every twelve hours, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. What's what's your take on the current climate and everything that's happening around this COVID nineteen? It's it's real uncertain times, eh? And I just think um, I, I kind of feel like it's it's one of the biggest uncertainties, perhaps that that I feel like, perhaps particularly in my adult life, that I've had to consider and um, and be quite considered in terms of what I am reading and who I am taking information from and the implications of that. And I guess for me as well, I think about for our family, um, I've got, you know, my two kids are in different cities from me now. And um, and so that makes me think about the the impact of it and, and what it might mean for us as a family a lot as well. Yeah, that's, that's pretty scary when you start thinking about immediate family and where they are in the country or the world um, and of things that come to a complete standstill, which um, it, it is in, in other countries, not New Zealand, thankfully, yet. Um, but how you'd manage and what that would look like and what would that, what that would mean for your family unit, unit, I think that's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing schools all over the world close and, and what that is doing is it's um, thrusting educators into this position that um, for some they can handle it and they're reasonably comfortable, but for a large portion of those teachers, this whole idea of working remotely or, or um, working online with their classes is pretty scary. Now, I know in your current role you work remotely every now and then, but how do you think that experience would be if you, say, you think back to your classroom days, how do you think you'd cope working remotely with a class of students? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think 
I think one of the things I've been thinking about for teachers and in terms of their well-being and that working remotely is um, having a point at which you switch off. And I know the reality is for teachers, they don't switch off at the end of the school day, that for many they take work home for them. But if they are faced with the situation of working from home, um, then I really encourage them to think about how it is that they are going to um, design either their home environment so that they have a, a dedicated workspace perhaps and, and also think about well, when is their switch off. Otherwise, I worry that there could just be this endless work day for for some for some teachers um and it will be interesting that that varying levels of preparedness for for teachers so some will be feeling quite comfortable I imagine because of how much they use um that online space or that the digital um, technologies already um, in in terms of their teaching practice and others that that just haven't at all and and will be feeling a great deal of discomfort, I think, in terms of um, what this might mean for them. Uh, what were your key takeaways from the episode with Stephen? Uh, I had some takeaways in terms of the advice that he that he gave, um, and so particularly, I guess it might apply for school leaders, but anybody that has any kind of um, influence or leadership within a school. Um, there were, there was some great advice. So um, one of them was around starting small. And I think for any teacher, that would be a huge relief to hear that, you know, there are small things that, that can be done um, if, if this is the situation that we're presented with. I liked the idea that he talked about the frequently answered questions and having um, those available for teachers and for parents and for students. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was um, when he talked about schools having really clear communications and consistent messages and expectations so that all staff could feel supported um, and that students kind of then would get the same um, same thing from whichever of their teachers they were interacting and and that was just I think you said you know this is how we do things and and in that way the less confident teachers would still feel that that level of support. Um, and then I think he gave some really good advice around, uh, you know, we're not at that point yet, but while um, you perhaps have got um, a little bit of time up your sleeve, <laughs> I say that when teachers have no time, we know that's the reality, but while we're not quite there yet, um, Perhaps do a couple of little things to get yourself prepared. So he gave a couple of ideas. One was around practicing making a video of yourself. So if you think you might use that kind of video um, forum with your students, then practice now making a video of yourself. And then the other one was around having whatever online platform that you might use ready so that your students are ready, they know how to log into it, you know how to use it, um, and everyone's kind of ready to go if schools make an announcement that, that they're closing. What I didn't consider is it's so easy to get caught up in your class and your classroom and your students and trying to deliver content to them. But the kids have that for all of their different learning areas. So we've got it easy being the teacher, being able to say, okay, here, here's our expectations. This is what we want you to do this week. Can you get this done? But they're going to be hearing different messages and different approaches, very different approaches from, from potentially six different teachers. And I think that's really scary um, to consider uh, how our students are going to cope in a situation like that. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing, from a student point of view and that I think teachers, particularly secondary teachers, are going to have to be really mindful of is the expectations of the, those students because the reality for many students probably is going to be if schools close um, that they will be perhaps looking after younger siblings and, um, and also you know, households might also perhaps only have one device that multiple students or young people in that in that household are wanting to access. So I think we're going to have to be, or teachers are going to have to be really mindful of managing those expectations around what that 
online learning will look like? Certainly, certainly. I, I think I think you're right there. Let's jump into the episode with Stephen McConaughey talking about successfully navigating an online and remote teaching space. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Carl. It's great to be here again. Again, yes. Episode 21, I think it was. Yeah, something like that. Hey, um, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background and teaching experience um, for those who didn't hear you on episode 21 and maybe a little bit about the current journey that you're on because uh, you're no longer in front of the classroom, I think. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I have been a maths teacher uh, for my, my whole kind of teaching career and also e-learning specialist. Um, so I was teaching uh, just over 11 years and uh, yeah, just stepped out into the, the consulting and research space now. So I'm doing my master's in education. But what I found when I started teaching, I, because I was good at technology, you know, I could um, make stuff work. Uh, people would ask me for help, but I didn't actually know you know, what good practice was. And um, I could tell them how to make the the technology do things that they wanted to do or do things that I thought maybe they should do, but I didn't necessarily know what was good practice. So I was a second year teacher and I had people who had been teaching for 30 years um, asking me for advice. So I rapidly felt out of my depth and I went and did post-grad study in e-learning and that kind of started this current journey that I've been on. So I uh, spent the last few years as director of e-learning and um, had an across-school lead role uh, to support um, kind of ICT pedagogy and the, the new digital technologies curriculum and a few Christchurch schools. So that's me. That's good. And of course, you also, you're our, what will we call you, our lead uh, content creator at My Study Series. And, um, you know, your maths content, video content that you create in that flipped space um, is some of the, the best in the world, hands down. Um, so you do some pretty awesome things. You are, you're very talented at what you do. And well, I'm, a little, you. I'm a little bit jealous of, of you being out of the classroom because it's something I have toyed with and <laughs> thought about and contemplated. But um, I obviously don't have the balls that you do and uh, haven't made that step yet. Well, depending on the day, sometimes it's brave and sometimes it's foolhardy, but uh, we'll, we'll see. No, good on you. See good how on the mortgage you. goes this year. Yeah. Hey, so we, we decided to jump on this episode because of the, the climate we find ourselves in, in now. Um, and I'm I'm going to put it out there. I'm no um, coronavirus expert. Um, I can't comment on it. I know very, very little about it. So uh, I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend to know anything about that. But what what I do know a lot about, and you yourself are very similar, is is kind of how to work in that remote or online space. So the focus of this is well, we thought we'd get together and have a chat about successfully navigating an online or remote teaching space because I think it's 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 only a matter of time before. Kiwis, New Zealanders are going to be facing the issue that other countries are seeing at the moment where schools are shutting down, students are potentially getting infected, um, and we are going to have to consider what this looks like for us as teachers, for our students, um, and, and all those sorts of things. Now, you have experienced something similar, not not the same, but something similar during the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, mm. Can you take some time to describe what that was like and how you managed? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so a bit of background for that. Um, uh, for those that weren't aware, 2011, there was a huge earthquake in Christchurch. Um, and so uh, lots of people injured, lots of people died, but that's um, also a whole lot of property damaged, including schools and so on. So our school, the school where I was teaching at the time, it was completely closed for, for seven weeks. Um, there were several schools closed, but we were we were the last one to reopen. Um, when it did start back up, we were sharing on another school site. So they started at early morning and they finished at lunchtime. Um, we started at lunchtime and then finished at 5.30 in the afternoon. So there was 20 minutes in between their final bell and our first bell. So we got one school out one gate um, and then our school in the other gate uh, in that 20 minutes. So there's four months of that. And then... Um, then we reopened on our own site, which had kind of been repaired in the meantime. Uh, while we were completely closed, um, we were just kind of doing what we could. So teaching in the city library, um, uh, 
teaching in McDonald's. Uh, so in the city library, we we kind of booked a space there and, and had a class. I did that several times. Um, had maybe half a dozen lessons in there, and then we found out a few weeks later that that building had been unsafe all along, and so they closed that down. And <laughs> we were glad it hadn't kind of fallen on our heads while we were teaching. But um, yeah, we just did what we could. Um, you know, like a one-off lesson in in some building and. Um, and met where we could, but I guess we really only kept any sort of continuity uh, with online tools. So, I mean, even our school server was sitting on the floor of our server room um, in a building that we weren't allowed to access anymore. So we we couldn't use our student management system or all our files that were sitting on our server. We only had the online stuff. So fully online, I mean. So I was using Wikispaces uh, and Twitter and Facebook. The school had Moodle, but it was it was just brand new. So um, I guess, yeah, to sum, to sum all of that up, uh, Earthquake closed the school and it was only the, the online stuff that, that helped us. And we just started with the basics of, you know, we upload notes and students can access it. And then as we kind of got a bit more fluent in it, um we we kind of moved to more interactive activities and and chats and um yeah a bit more engagement there i've heard you describe in the past that um that event kind of kick-started an evolution of of um i guess embracing digital technology in the classroom and in that area of new zealand and it kind of um laid the the foundations or the path for other areas in new zealand to um Mm, to run with that yeah, there was a lot of innovation around Canterbury in that um, uh, around those times, and so what we found in New Zealand was that um, a whole lot of schools who kind of they've been toying with with digital stuff before um, and with online learning or blended learning, um, they I mean they had no choice, and so they they jumped into it, and because of that as a nation we kind of grew, and we were like, oh well, you know, we know this works, we know this doesn't work, and stuff that possibly would have taken us years to get to. Um, we we were kind of part of that early early jump, which was quite cool. And it definitely had some challenges. Um, and yeah, it was, it was some good came out of it, I guess is the best way to put it. I, I think that is a good way to put it. And, um, you know, I think a lot of what I do um, has stemmed from these opportunities where um, you learn from other people and you see things that other educators are doing and you take it and you learn from them and you, and you build your own stuff. So, um, you know, that is good to come out of that. And, and I'm glad that, um, you guys were able to lead the way with that because it's helped other people, um, become mm. really competent in, in different areas with technology and education. Mm. So we, you know, I'm, I'm hearing all over the show and I'm getting a lot of questions from people saying, what tools do I need? Uh, how, how can I make this room? You know, our school's going to close. How can I um, teach remotely? What do I need to know? What are the skills I need? And and I think one thing I want to ask you about is, is put that aside for a couple of questions at least. And, you know, education at the moment is so consumed by well-being, your student well-being, mm. teacher well-being. So yeah. let's say that schools in New Zealand were going to temporarily close down. Now, based on your your experience, I'd love to hear your take on what the challenges we face from a staff and student well-being perspective across yeah. across three different periods. First of all, that initial shutdown, the the shock um, that students and teachers are going to face, starting there, and then maybe you know several weeks down the track, you know that the the process or the their their change is kind of becoming a bit more embedded, and then um, and the third stage if this say went on for a lot longer than, than we hoped for, what, what are the things we're likely to see from that wellbeing perspective, both students and teachers? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, as it, this is just kind of speaking from, from my experience with the earthquake and also experience with, um, kind of the research around online learning and, and pros and cons. Um, uh, but I'm, you know, not a, a wellbeing expert as such, but I think certainly in that initial shutdown, um, I guess a significant contributor to well-being or lack thereof will be the workload for the teachers who, you know, they're getting their head around the the new system. Um, and I think, you know, you see a lot of uh, comments and blogs and articles and so on flying around Twitter. And um, I don't know if people have quite grasped that. I mean, I, certainly the people on the ground have, uh, but those whose schools have not yet been closed, I don't think they've yet grasped 
you know how difficult that's going to be that initial shock um and i guess a sense of loss for that that routine of daily life uh things will be different um it won't be the same as with the earthquake because of course with the earthquake there was all that other trauma and and um and stuff that i mean if you're not personally affected by the by the virus in terms of um you know somebody somebody that you know being sick it's quite possible that this will simply be a change of kind of practical situation. You were working in person and now you're working remotely, but there will still be a sense of loss with that. So I think in the initial shutdown, that'll be a challenge for wellbeing, both for students and for staff. And I guess that ties into the next thing of, of social connection. Like the, the biggest loss in this school closure thing will be social connection. And we know from research that uh, the biggest factor in a good any good teaching program is the relationship with the teacher. Um, that's still true for online stuff, but if if schools are used to having students and teachers engaging and interacting in in real life, I guess in uh, you know face to face, that loss of social connection is going to be really challenging for well being. Um, so I think it's worth looking for ways to incorporate that into the new program into the new the new normal i guess um yeah so that's the that's the initial shutdown um and then you said uh several weeks down the track so i guess from my experience with the earthquake school closures it kind of gets a bit more routine um i mean yes everything's different and everything's crazy but it does get a bit more routine so students and staff kind of you get your head around how it works and and what routines work and and what doesn't work for you um so it it does get easier in that regard but then i guess there's new challenges um i mean i guess any anybody that's worked with teenagers and the online space at all knows that um cyberbullying is is a huge deal and suddenly students will be spending the majority of their time online it's not as simple as no put your phone away and suddenly they can't cyberbully or be cyberbullied or you know have that kind of that kind of experience so I think that will be another challenge and I don't really have any suggestions right now for how teachers can mitigate that. I think I think it's important for teachers and parents and students to all kind of be aware that operating in a fully online environment is going to look different. Um and therefore you're gonna to have to do things and you know be a bit more kind online and you know, just make this sustainable. You you wanna still be able to face the computer in a couple of months time you don't want to by then be you know such an anxious wreck from from having to deal with the the social rubbish of cyberbullying that you know this is something that our, our 12 13 14 15 year old kids are uh facing every day as it is but at least they can switch it off and you know sit down in class and turn their phone off which as we know all students turn their phone off during class um and they're definitely not texting in class time but uh <laughs> yeah i think that's going to be a challenge um and then screen time would i guess would be the other thing um balance and this will be a thing for the long term as well but uh balancing the screen time with getting up and, and kind of interacting in the real world um Research says about screen time so that the, there's a difference between discretionary screen time or I guess recreational screen time and productive screen time. So if you're watching stuff or, you know, consuming content or playing a game, um, that's different in terms of the effects that that has on your health from if you're sitting down to do some work. That's fine, but then if I sit down to do some work, I'm quickly often distracted by social media or other things that I could be doing. And so suddenly that time that I had planned to be productive screen time is now discretionary screen time, which makes it bad for my house. So if I'm spending eight hours on the computer to work, um, you know, there's going to be some some health effects to that as well. Um, so I would say we're going to need to just be really careful about that, um, getting up and interacting with real people in our house and kind of keeping those those face-to-face relationships going, uh, get some exercise out of your chair, um, yeah, all of that stuff. And definitely no screens for an hour before bed. I think that'll be a big factor for well-being too. When you, when you start to get sucked in for um, kind of online life. And I, I, I even found this 
moving out of teaching. Um, for the last few weeks, I've been living the student life, uh, doing my master's research and doing consulting, which is often remote work and um, writing. And so I'm living on my computer a lot of the time and I've had to really grapple with this um, discipline and um, not getting distracted and not not getting so sucked into the digital life that I'm then yep. kind of in the zone and mm. then keep working up until late at night and then trying to go to bed straight away. Uh, you know, it's just, it's all the things that the the medical professionals tell us not to do. So I'd say if people are being careful with their relationships, um, both in kind of how they're treating people online, but also in how they're disengaging from kind of computers and the online world and going and interacting with real people as much as possible in a, a virus ridden world. Um, I think that's going to be really, really important. And that, that's probably, that's probably if you extended that out long-term, those things all apply, don't they? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think especially, especially the routines, um, you know, keeping those relationships going, I mean, I'd like to think that in six months' time, the whole world has um, really mastered this, <laughs> but I don't know how realistic that is. Mm. You know, people people know that, okay, I'm sitting down to work, so I work, and I, you know, you might have apps that or browser extensions that help you to focus and not get distracted, and then when it's time to rest, you shut your computer and you get up and you walk away and you um, interact with real people. Um, yeah, I, I would say it probably definitely... <laughs> probably definitely <laughs> i think it's gonna look i think it's gonna look the same in in a few months time just a bit more embedded sure. we'll get a bit more used to it a sure. bit more normal sure yeah I, I kudos to you for a couple of things you said there first of all um identifying that you're not a well-being expert um mm. neither am i and i think it's important to recognize um that when we are in that space and talking about well-being um and also acknowledging the difference between the scenario of um a Christchurch earthquake and um, the, the current climate that we're in with, with COVID-19, two mm. very different scenarios there. Um, but you also mentioned something that was quite interesting. You are talking about um, that the discretionary screen time versus screen time mm. where you might be doing productive stuff. Are you saying that when um, I sit here and do work on my computer for six hours in the evening that that's good for my health? I'm interested <laughs> in that research. Yeah, no, that's not what I'm saying. No, um, no. So there's lots of research about uh, discretionary screen time being bad for your health. You know, there's yep. there's negative health effects for if you're spending um, hours looking at a screen and consuming content, but especially with social media because there's that extra layer of the social interactions yep. um, and, you know, the, the echo chamber. And um, definitely the more time you spend on social media, the worse for your health um well, that doesn't mean that uh if you are doing doing work on the computer that's good for your health um it just isn't associated with those same negative health effects or at least to the same degree mm. um or the the study that i read said uh there are no negative health effects associated with um non-discretionary screen time okay. um in saying that, though, if I've spent eight hours on the computer, my eyes feel fuzzy and I don't want to watch Netflix before bed. Um, not that you do that an hour before bed anyway, of course. But, you know, like I, I I, know what the research says, but at the same time, I know that if I've spent all day on the laptop, I need to disengage and I need to get up and get moving. And, um, you know, if I've been sitting at my desk all day, I'm not going to sleep well that night. Um there's there's all those other little things as well that moving into an online space where you're not walking from class to class mm. or, um, you know, walking down to the staff room or whatever. Um, yes, the discretionary screen time is bad for you uh, and the non-discretionary screen time doesn't necessarily have that same effect, but it's still going to be a different environment in terms of looking after ourselves that, that we're going to have to keep in mind. Interestingly, on a side note, like, um, you know, I work pretty hard outside of school, um, online based, a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, and I used to be a very, very big gamer. I used to play a lot of games. Um, yeah. You know, I've traveled the world playing video games. These days, you know, 
I will come in at maybe, you know, I sleep a lot earlier these days. Um, mm. I understand the importance of that. So I, I like to wrap things up about nine o'clock and come in and have some downtime. Now, previously that downtime for me was going to be jumping online and playing some video games on the TV. Uh, but mm. now you're going from one space where you're really engaged and, and working and concentrating. If I then go inside to play some video games, it's just more of the same, probably more intense yeah. because you've got the bright lights and the flashing and the quick movements. And I just can't bear to do it. And it's, um, I'm a little bit gutted about that because I used to take so much pleasure from playing video <laughs> games. Old car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so we've got teachers who are trying to be prepared for what might eventuate from this, um, but they can often be at the mercy of, um, you know, their principals or administrators or, or senior leaders. What advice in your experience do you have for the people making the big picture decisions to ensure that our students are getting the best possible outcomes in a school closure scenario? Hmm. I think giving time to teachers is the biggest thing. I saw on Twitter yesterday, and I just about cheered out loud, uh, there was one school who they closed down for several days before the actual shutdown just to give the teachers Perfect. time to prepare mm. and time to, you know, prepare online resources and get their, their online classroom set up and um, just, you know, hit the ground running. I think that's so important. I was so happy to see that a school had done that. Um, and if, if senior leaders can prioritize that, you know, cancel other meetings and other workload requirements, you know, some kind of report that would be, would be nice to have would be a requirement in a normal, normal setting. But now, Maybe maybe it's not so important. You can kind of put it off for a few months. Um, that's going to really help teachers uh, kind of have the headspace to to get into the stuff. Um, yeah, and as I was saying before, switching from fully face to face to fully online is huge, especially under short time frame, and especially under kind of situations like this. So it is doable if teachers get the time. Mm. The next thing, I guess make like an FAQ sheet, um, frequently asked questions for teachers so that their staff know what they're doing. Another one for parents, another one for students, just be really, really clear about how your school is going to manage that transition to online learning because it's one thing to say, um, it's one thing to say this is good practice and this is what the world is doing. It's quite another to say, here are the steps that we have taken so that your child specifically will get what they need next week when we close or whatever it is. Mm. So I think having that communication is going to be going to be critical. Um, and the other thing, I guess, would be getting consistency across teachers, kind of the same as the, the communication. Um, if a school can have one clear directive so that all teachers have a process for keeping students accountable, whether it's like checking in and keeping up with work online and um, engaging them. If there's some requirement or or recommendation for all teachers to be doing the same kind of routine for that, it's going to build a culture where students know that they have to keep up with the work for all their teachers. And that's going to support the teachers who are kind of less confident in this area. So I think building that online culture. I mean, we know how to build a culture in a physical school. We know how to support our colleagues in that area. We know how consistency is key in that. I think it's really important to go into the online space with that same mindset of if you are consistent with your colleagues, it means that the teachers who are weaker in this space are going to be supported by that strong culture. So students will turn up to their online class going, oh, well, this is how we do things. I, I need to submit this on time because that's what we do. I need to um, respond to the chat posts like I've been told to because that's what we do. Rather than every teacher having to fight their own battles of of you know trying to engage the students if if everyone's on the same page with that. And so where school leaders come in, I guess, is is getting that consistency across the teachers and having clear communication about. Um, okay, teachers, this is what we expect you to be doing to engage your students or to to kind of hold them accountable for keeping up with the work. We are expecting you to uh, maybe make a post or a video chat or something at the beginning of the week to set the scene and set the learning objectives. We are expecting you to share the learning objectives before every online session. We are expecting you to, um, you know, check that students are uh, posting and contributing to online things and, uh, you know, at least once a week or whatever it is for that school. I think that's going to really help teachers as well. 
Yeah, I, I really like those expectations being set um, from the top. Um, and of, of course, there will be also teacher voice amongst all of that, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're getting a say as well. And, and also touching on that collegiality and having respect for everybody and making sure that um, you're able to enforce or be accountable, enforce those expectations so that it's the same for each teacher and the yeah, students yeah. get that consistency. Yeah. I do wonder, though, is, is successfully navigating this online or remote teaching space, is it only viable for those of us who consider ourselves tech savvy? Or, you know, how can we motivate mm. those people who are fearful or, or not comfortable working with technology? Because I, I just know from experience that there's going to be teachers who just say, no, nah, I'm not doing this. I can't do it. I don't yeah. have the capability. Yeah, I've already heard some of those teachers. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the first thing would be just what I was saying before: the culture. Um, if if this is the way we do things, uh, you know, the new normal, then that's going to help those teachers who are uncomfortable in this area. So the the students will know this is how we do it, and all of the teachers will go, "Well, this is what everybody else is doing." And so, taking those early steps will be will be really important to build the culture and then it will become this kind of self-perpetuating positive cycle of, um, you know, you're building the culture by doing all these little practices and then the culture itself will support all the next steps that you try and take. Um, but I guess that the key there is that you start small. So if you're, if you're fearful or uncomfortable in this area, uh, kind of working with digital technology, definitely just start small, just upload a PDF, get students to email you with their reflection on the, on, on the notes that you've posted that's you know that's fine for a first step we have all these like frameworks and and models for best practice um you know what does good look like for e-learning and it's it's all this creative and collaborative and all the, all of that good stuff but the reality is everybody started small i mean i remember my first few years um certainly wasn't what you would call best practice. Um, and you've got to do that. Every single person who's operating in the kind of the ed tech space, we yeah. all started small. Yeah. We all did that one little first step. So just do the one little bit that you can do. And then um, not only will that be a, a valid first step for your own journey, it's also going to start to build that culture and the st students will kind of start to get the, the hang of it. Nice. I think it's also worth noting though that even some teachers who are tech savvy, maybe in a situation where they can only do something small. So even those who kind of know better, for want of a better term, um, they may find that they don't actually have the capacity to do that. Um, you know, for example, like a teacher with young children, is not they're not going to have the same experience working from home as a teacher living alone or a teacher yep. living with other professionals. So um, I guess just be kind to yourself and be aware of your capacity. So if you don't know better, uh, you know, if you if this is all new to you, then just start small. And if you do know better, but you're finding that you can't operate at that at that capacity that you normally would, or that you know is best practice, just be kind to yourself and kind of do what you can. Mm. And then, um, yeah, those routines and structures will start to um, start to come become a bit more embedded. Okay. Well, what are some of the simple tools and strategies that educators should have in their kitty right now to ensure that they are prepared for a worst case scenario school shutdown? Is there anything that we could be doing right now to, you know, have something handy if, if that happened? Yeah, I guess first it would be be online now. Uh, you know, have an have an online presence now. Find some place right now before your school is shut down where you can upload a file and communicate with students and make sure that all the students can successfully get on. Um, this is a really interesting Twitter thread. Um it, somebody asked, you know, what do you wish you'd known? I guess like what do you for those who have been shut down, um what do you wish you had prepared before you shut down? And so there were people um, saying, I mean, it's a great thread, go go Google it. <laughs> but uh, um, one thing in particular was people were saying, I wish I had kind of set the students up on this online thing, whatever the thing was, whether it was Teams or Google Classroom or mm -hmm. whatever platform they were using, mm -hmm. um, they wished that they had just had that ready with the students had their login, you had to get in so that then even if nothing else happened on the platform, you weren't having to kind of start at step zero and communicate with students by email or phone or whatever it is and try and get them into the platform first so that you can then do some learning. 
it was like step zero was taken care of. Now you can do step one and learn. Mm. Uh, so I think that's important. Um, I think another another tool or strategy would be make a quick video of yourself. Just, I mean, in the day-to-day kind of new normal for this online thing, making videos of yourself or making videos of content is going to be crucial. Uh, it's, you know, it's the difference between a really dry program in a program which has some a bit more social connection yeah. built in. So, I mean, the research is pretty clear, especially um, I know you're, you're familiar with the research around flipped learning where it's so much more effective if the teacher's face and the teacher's voice is in the video rather than just some of the video that um, teachers have found online. So, I mean, if you, if you don't have your own content, by all means, go find it online or my study series is a great package. Um, but if you're, making your own, it will engage your students better. So the way that you can do that, sorry, the way that you can prepare, I guess, for a school closure would be if you've never made a video of yourself, make one now. Just make a, a silly, rubbish little video of, of yourself saying hi so that you get the process of how do you record yourself? How do you share that video? Just share it with a friend and then make them delete it or something. Um but it's going to be far less intimidating when you have to sit down and make one for your students once your school has closed down, if you've already kind of done a dummy run when you had a bit more headspace. So I'd say if they, if teachers have an opportunity now to just make a quick video um, and then share it with somehow, that's going to help them later on when they're finding, well, you know, it might be a good idea to have an introduction video for the week every week or, you know, a quick video of you talking about the learning objectives or even going the whole way and kind of making videos where teachers are explaining content on a video um, because not everybody is going to be in an environment where they can do synchronous live video chat, you know, yep. That, uh, yep. synchronous versus asynchronous. So, um that's fine. Live video chat is great. It's going to build your social com- uh, social connections and so on. But then not every student is going to have Wi-Fi. Not every, you know, you can't necessarily say at 2 p.m. everybody get on. It's really important to try. I think it's really beneficial if you can have those those synchronous things built in. But um, having pre-recorded videos is also going to help heaps too. And get on Twitter. There's so many ideas flying around yeah. on Twitter from teachers who've kind of been here before. There is. Um, yeah. I, I like what... And if teachers... Go, sorry. There you go. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, if, if if teachers are doing the doing the mahi now, <laughs> you get the treats later. You know, like if the, if teachers are starting to talk to students now um, about what the expectations will be if the school's closed down, then, um, you know, this is how to log in now. Uh, and then once we go into a fully online environment, this is what I will expect from you. That's going to be really crucial, crucial as well to um, hit the ground running if we do go that way. Yeah, I, I like your comments on on fronting with some video and, and getting some experience there. You know, my, myself, I think about recording myself now and, I, and I've done it thousands of times in an educational mm. space and I'm only just getting past the point where I'm like, Delete, try again, delete, yeah, try right. again, delete, yeah. try again. Now I'm just, I'm finally at the point where I, I just don't care. Look, that'll do. That's, that's good enough. And that shows a, yeah. a human component to it as well. When you, when you, um, you're prepared to make mistakes in front of your students, but so true that, you know, I'd always recommend that. Yeah. Sure. Use some other content, use my study series or whatever, but it, where you can record yourself, if you're in a, in this online space, record yourself because that's you have the relationship with the student, not an external provider. Yeah, You're yeah, the one that yeah. has that that capital with them, and you need to be ensuring that you maintain those relationships because it's so so important. Um, yeah. What about in terms of more advanced pedagogical approaches or high level tools that we could be using? You know, things that might require a little bit more investment of time to learn, mm. but could have a big payoff in terms of student outcomes. I guess if we look at like what is best practice, um, the most effective e-learning happens when students are creating and collaborating and using critical thinking and they're articulating their understanding. Um, and so I guess a really powerful activity could be like build something in Minecraft Education Edition or in Paint 3D. Uh, you know, build something which illustrates some concept or, or your understanding of it, then record a screencast where you explain in your own words what you've built and how it illustrates that concept. 
uh, then share it with the class, then go and use this rubric to peer evaluate and you know give your give your classmates some feedback. That's going to be the really effective stuff. Uh, but then, it, of course, it requires students to know Minecraft Education Edition or know Paint 3D, know how to record a screencast, know how to share a screencast, um, know how to use whatever online chat thing you're doing to give the feedback, or even just pedagogically, you know, know how to use a rubric so that they can peer evaluate. I, I learned the first time I gave the, my kids a rubric um, and asked them to not just mark with it, but, you know, use it as a learning tool and, and for peer, peer feedback and so on. I thought, oh, it's just a big grid. They'll be fine. I'll, I'll give that to them and I'll run with it. They did not run with it. <laughs> they, uh, they had no idea what to do. Uh, so that was a mess. But, you know, I learned. Um, and, yeah, using rubrics is incredibly powerful. So as a learning tool and as a, a feedback tool, not just as a marking grid um but then building that into a, like a really effective e-learning um e-learning activity i think that's that's where the money is e-learning is not about the technology it's about thinking and so if you're getting students to think by creating something which which illustrates how they understand it and then talking in their own words about how they understand it and then um evaluating their friends against some rubric but it's still going to be through the lens of what what the the um what the critiquer understands you know it's all about building the thinking so i think seeing e-learning as just a vehicle for building thinking i think is critical yeah the, the funny thing is everything you just described there is just good teaching and if you could see yeah. that in a classroom right now you'd be like wow that's awesome that's like look mm. at what we've achieved there that's fantastic so yeah. um you know hitting hitting that upper end of blooms we were looking at analyzing creating evaluating those are all excellent things that we should be aiming for and striving for and and every class that we teach um yeah and to make that transition or that step into an online space you're actually probably going to find that that's easier because, you know, if, if we're in a classroom and we say make something, well, that's kind of becomes a little bit hard. But if you're in a purely digital online space, um, the only way to, to do it is through tools that you can access on your device. Um, and, mm. and I think um, so I, I think you're onto a, onto a really strong point there. And um, people just need to, you know, like jump on Twitter and learn these things and see what other people are doing because um, it is it is really, really achievable. Um, you mm. know, you, you talk often about the Sam R model and, and substitution and, and, and maybe people are thinking, well, I, I, that's about the extent of my capability. Well, I don't think it is. I think if you just yeah. think a little bit more, um, see what other people are doing, then you're going to find that actually you can do some really cool things online and you don't need a hell of a lot of um, experience to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly leaving a task open-ended can be really powerful for students. So you say, I want you to build me something or, or explain this however you want. You know, you're going to have some kids who write it. You're going to have some kids who draw you a diagram. You're going to have some kids who build something in Minecraft. You're going to have, um, you know, some kids who just make a PowerPoint or something. If if we're being a bit more flexible with the tasks we set, it's going to give students more agency and it's going to really harness, I guess, some of this e-learning stuff, you know, the the power of e-learning that, that can happen or the potential there. Um, it's going to harness that by, yeah, by being more flexible and just going around in circles. But but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah. And as you say, good good e learning practice is good teaching practice. And so I ran a workshop um just to start of this week on uh it was kind of a, a it was called Beyond the Basics. It was it was for exactly this. It was advanced kind of e learning practice for people that knew how to do the basics. They knew how to distribute a page and and um you know, set an assignment, mark the assignment. They wanted to know how do I really harness the potential here? So it was all this stuff. I mean, I went through Bloom's taxonomy. I went through solo taxonomy. I went through the, um, it wasn't even e-learning pedagogy for half of the workshop. I mean, we, we talked about SAMR as well. And we talked about um, TPAC, the technological, pedagogical and content knowledge. Um, but a lot of the talk was just talking about, um, 
how do we teach well in a physical classroom? You know how to do that already. Let's look at how do we pull that stuff into our, our e-learning planning because it's all just the same stuff. So, you know, we know what engagement looks like. We know that it's not enough just to be drilling and skilling with worksheets. And so let's not fall into the trap of of just drilling with really fancy quizzes that give you a pretty avatar to dress up and you know, there's a bit more to it than that, but I guess substitution is so alluring. It's so, it's so seductive. Um, when teachers are picking up, um, picking up e-learning, it's, it's not like there's, there's just teachers going, well, I know what good practice is, um, but I can only do substitution. I think there's another whole category of teachers who don't know what good practice is and all they see is substitution. And so they go, oh, e-learning, oh, Okay, I'll give kids this activity to to kind of plug away at at forty questions one after the other as fast as they can with pretty bright flashing colours and um, you know there's no kind of deep thinking there. So take the teaching knowledge and the pedagogy knowledge that you already have about about depth of thinking and and um, synthesising knowledge and all that good stuff. Put that into your e learning program. That's where the money is. Nice, perfect. Hey, before we get to the last question. Oh, yep. Your podcast episode, which was down a down a similar um, a similar um, topic, and yep. you were talking about digital natives, and mm. that was a really interesting discussion. And I want to ask you about that because um, you were you don't really believe in the term, or you don't buy into it. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, I. Yeah, I, I have an issue with that. Uh, I think it's done a lot of damage and a lot of harm. I think I was saying to Ben, um, they, there's a lot of teachers who are put off by the digital native thing. They they feel, um, I guess, intimidated by the, this this model, this picture, which isn't actually true. Um, so they go, well, if they're digital natives, um, they should already know how to do stuff. So then the teacher... Um, as a, a digital immigrant, um, they think, oh, well, if I just give them this task, they'll know how to do the mechanics of it, uh, which often is not the case at all. Um, but then it's not even a complete picture because you've got, as I was saying to Ben, you've got digital natives, uh, the students, digital immigrants, the teachers who are kind of coming into this digital digital area they didn't grow up with it but then what about digital refugees um a colleague of mine in christchurch coined the term digital refugees they they don't want to be there they um they're kind of being dragged there against their will they um they're doing what they can in this new new paradigm but they'd rather go home to their own uh own kind of area if if circumstances were better so there's that as well um but i think the biggest problem with digital native versus digital immigrant is that no native is born into their culture with all of that cultural narrative and all of the skills and speaking the language and knowing how to behave, you know, the etiquette, um, social responsibility, that stuff that adults have, (laughs) should have. um, And just being native to a culture does not mean that you automatically have all of that stuff in that culture. And that's, critical for teachers to understand about their students that actually students know how to consume content they do not necessarily know how to engage in a learning platform um, and use technology for learning and research backs this up as well so i think that's that's really huge and then teachers who do feel like a digital native um i mean probably you and me included can feel a little um i guess alienated by that model as well because yes i'm i'm working with digital immigrants and and helping them to kind of come into this this sphere this realm but um but i feel like i i get technology i when i don't know everything about it but i can usually sit down and follow my nose around a new program and kind of work out how it works and um you know that's i just i just don't think that model fits at all um, not a, not a fan. No, but see what you said then. Like, you think you can sit down and and you know find your way along something. That's because that's passionate for you and me. That's something that we enjoy. And coming to um, this discovering and and figuring out um, how to get to that endpoint is something that we take pleasure in. But if you say to a kid, "Hey, uh, we need you to register here and do this and find your way over to here," 
they're not particularly or necessarily passionate about that. So they're not going to give two hoots and they're going to battle fine anyway. And I, I love the terms you mm. were using there, um, especially digital refugee. That's a, that's a fantastic one. Um, and the reason this just came to my head just then when, when I asked you that question was when I was listening to um, your episode with Ben and you got to that point, I had about 20 pop-ups uh, for my email from students who were struggling to um, sign up to my study series. And the questions that they were mm. asking me, all they needed to do was redeem a six-digit code and they were in and they yeah. just could not figure it out. And uh, I, I yeah. thought that was quite funny. So some really interesting interesting points you make there. Um, and I agree wholeheartedly. I've used that term digital native quite a bit, but um, I think I need to um, yeah. cut that one out of my <laughs> vocab maybe. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I think um, there are there are students and teachers in all three categories of of native. Um, well, four four categories: natives who haven't yet learnt the culture, natives who have learnt and they can operate fluently, immigrants and refugees. I guess they're all they're all they all exist in both teachers and students. Um, yeah, yeah, nice. super important. <laughs> Last question, and we've touched on this a little bit already um, about how the Christchurch earthquakes really forced those educators involved to embrace technology and, and lead the way nationwide. Do you think what we're experiencing right now, um, this scenario is going to kickstart the evolution of online learning and mm. see online learning communities flourish in the coming years? Or is this all just hype and expect things to return to the status quo once um, all of this blows over? <laughs> Yeah, uh, good question. I think if we look at what happened in Christchurch, here we are ten years later, and there are still there are still schools and individuals who aren't keen on e-learning, and it's you know it's it for them it did go back. Um, but if we look at the big picture, the, you know the the effect that it had on the whole country, certainly the effect that it had on Canterbury education. Um, I think it's huge. So I guess there's a difference between the big picture and then individuals. So big picture, I, I reckon this um, this global scenario right now, it's going to be a watershed vacation. You know, there's going to be teachers of this crisis. I mean, you, you've got to expect that at least some of those are going to turn into recurring contracts once the normal school resumes. Um, so... These aren't schools that are poached from other companies and other platforms. This is this is new schools that are coming into the e-learning world for the first time. So I, I do think this is going to be huge globally for um, online learning and online learning communities. But may, uh, yeah, certainly on a smaller scale, there will be plenty of individuals and possibly whole schools who, once they don't have to do online learning anymore, they'll drop it again. Um I think that will depend on their experience. You know, were they sufficiently prepared? Were the students engaged? Did the learning happen effectively or at all during this time? There'll be some hits and misses. There'll be some uh, some wins and, and losses. Um, I think it's really important to remember that if a teacher has a bad experience here um, with the coronavirus, with the kind of online learning rollout, that's going to affect the next few years of of how they see e-learning as a whole uh, it's going to be you know huge variation between different schools and different teachers but but yeah that'll, that that'll determine whether the teachers and the parents and the students whether they see it as a good thing worth continuing or not or you know just more more effort than it's worth um so yeah there'll be some who return to the status status quo but yeah i mean i think the research shows that online learning when you do online learning well it's pretty much as good as face-to-face -face teaching done well um, I mean, the wording and uh, there's a study from the US that did, um, they looked, I think it was a thousand, they looked, they read a thousand papers and, and kind of summarized it into this one. And they found that uh, the wording they used was that online learning was modestly better than face-to-face -face teaching. So if you're doing face-to-face -face teaching, it's not worth it to drop that and go online if you have a choice. But blended learning is more effective than both of them when it's done well. So, I mean, if if people have no choice but to move to online learning because your school's shut down, then fine, go to online learning. The research says that, yes, it's at least as good. So great, you're not going to completely lose out from that. It will be hard work, but 
can can be done really well. But blended learning is more effective than both. So I think and I hope that you know, once the world returns to normal after the pandemic, schools reopen, students go back into a physical class. I'm hoping that by then this, the world has seen the advantages of online learning and then more and more people, more and more teachers and and parent communities and schools will, will be wanting to blend those e-learning practices back into their face-to-face programs. I think that's really critical. Mm. Hey, this chat's been really insightful. Um, you're obviously in a consulting role right now. Um, if, yep. if schools want to get in touch with you to talk more about preparing and, and how they can be supported through this as an example, um, and I'm sure many of the other skills that you have, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, I think uh, Twitter or LinkedIn are, are the best ways for now. I've got a website coming, but um, yeah, Twitter probably the best best place to start. S McConaughey. Okay, I'll, I'll add those into the show notes. And I just want to cool. um, take the opportunity to thank you for catching up with me again. It's always um, I always come away from our conversations, whether they're just on the phone or uh, over DM or in podcast episodes, feeling more intelligent um, than <laughs> when I went in. Um, so you, you, you're a wealth of knowledge on all of this um your your flipped capabilities are unmatched um and you know i just really want to wish you luck in your transition which you've already made really from teaching into into your current position um thank you i really appreciate that yeah no it's um it's exciting to to watch you um in the space and be really successful mm, thanks all right mate have, have a good weekend great you too cheers